The climate is changing at an accelerating pace. Thousands of residents and tourists have been evacuated from the region. No one country can solve this problem. There's really one key message that emerges from this report. We are out of time. Welcome to Climate Change and Happiness, an international podcast that explores the personal side of climate change, your feelings, what the crisis means to you, and how to cope and thrive. And now, your hosts, Thomas Doherty and Panu Pikala. Hello, I'm Thomas Doherty. And I'm Panu Pikala. And welcome to Climate Change and Happiness, our podcast. This is a show for people around the globe who are feeling and thinking deeply about climate change, particularly the personal side, how climate change affects them and their families and their communities and their emotional responses. And we have a guest today. Hi, I'm Susan Clayton. Glad to be with you. And yes, we have a special guest. Susan Clayton is uh, some of you in the, in the psychology world would know of Susan and the climate psychology world, but she's a big name in, in our world in terms of understanding people's connections with nature and the natural world. And Susan will talk about herself. We'll get into her work, but she's, you know, just a little preview. She comes in to this as a social psychologist. And I got the chance to meet Susan some years ago when I was a newcomer of clinician therapist trying to break into the environmental psychology group at the American Psych Association. And Susan was very kind to me, as, as were others, to help me get into that group. And I got a chance to work with Susan directly on the task force that the American Psychological Association did. The first one they did around uh, 10 or 11 years ago. And so I got a chance to work with Susan and learn from her. And I've since followed her work. And I know uh, Panu has um, more recently been spending a, a fair amount of at least virtual time with Susan. Yeah, that is very, very correct. And warmly welcome Susan also for, for my part. We are very, very glad to to have have you here and of course i've been reading texts by both of you and also sometimes written together like that one influential article but then during the last year both susan and i were taking part in this international research group about climate emotions which produced a, a global survey research article about young people's emotions and beliefs about climate matters and that's gotten us busy this or this mm. autumn 2021 so but how how are you susan doing in the midst of these strange times the climate meeting is going on and the climate crisis is proceeding so how how are you feeling well it's these are interesting times as they say um there's always something that's going on that seems relevant to to my research and professional interests and um you know so that interest is is one way to keep a positive mindset i think um and just before saying more, I want to acknowledge that both of you have really affected my thinking about climate change. Um, uh, Thomas over the years and Fanu more recently. Um, Thomas, you were the first clinical psychologist I met who was interested in this. Mm. Uh, and so really started me to get to start to think about how people were affected by their understanding of, you know, of what was happening to the environment. And then um, more recently, getting to know Panu and uh, just the nuance you bring to thinking about the different emotions we experience when we think about climate change. So uh, kudos to both of you, and you really helped um, help my thinking along the way. Thanks. Thanks. Thank you, Susan. 
Susan, I, well, you know, I'll have to get this in. We can talk about a lot of things, but, you know, environmental identity is, I think, a really big topic. I'm doing this training with with mental health therapists now, and and that's one of the big platforms of the work is, is helping them to understand their environmental identity and their thoughts and feelings and beliefs and values about nature. And, and we're using that as the basis to then put on top the, the therapy skills they already know and the different therapy styles. So it's sort of like what I call it an environmental identity-based therapy, or so you might say environmental identity-based cognitive therapy or whatever. So where do you come at environmental identity these days? I mean, I know it's sort of a, a, a broad phrase, but you know, what, what pieces of it are coming up for you lately? Yeah, so what, you know, when I started thinking about environmental identity, it was um, with the idea of recognizing, based on you know on, on conversations I had with people and things I heard people say, that nature was important to the way people thought about themselves, and it could really uh, be a source of of self knowledge as well as kind of self affirmation and strengths to think about how we're all part of the natural world. Um, so I continue to think about how can we help people to have a strong environmental identity, especially as, you know, we all are aware that we're in a world where it's increasingly difficult to have experiences in nature. Um, people are more likely to live in, in urban areas, for one thing. Nature is de becoming degraded for another thing. And of course, most of us spend a vast amount of time with technology, which is also um, potentially interfering in the relationship with nature. So how, in this kind of changing world, can we still find ways to, to form that connection that, uh, with nature that can form a part of our environmental identity? Mm. Yeah, that's mo most important. And we've noticed that you've been working in several parts of the world in relation to this. There's some recent research articles taking a look to the east, even further east than fin Finland to, to, to Russia and, and, and China. So and any, any thoughts about that east direction? I have to admit that um, certainly when I went, when I was trained as a psychologist, uh, it was still in the era where we liked to think that we were understanding general tendencies about people and we didn't have to pay too much ex attention to the specifics. So um, I was not really uh, very mindful about cultural differences, but you know, the, the, the more I study, the more I realize I don't know. And it's, um, it's become very clear to me that the ways in which we think about nature, as well as the ways in which we think about the relationship of our own relationships with nature, um, are very much culturally grounded. Uh, probably even, um, you know, bigger difference is thinking about a lot of indigenous peoples and how they uh, think about the relationship between humans and the natural world. But certainly, you know, Eastern cultures like China um, and, you know, slightly less far east, uh, but still, I think, with elements of Eastern, um, you know, Turkey or, or Russia, uh, they also have different ways of thinking about nature. And um, it's just important in expanding my sense of, of what's possible and what we take for granted. Yeah, thanks for thanks for sharing that. And coming from Finland, it's of course very interesting because we have such a long border with Russia and the Turkish people tend to see fin Finns as sort of distant relatives. So there's a special connection there, but also even here near the eastern edge of Europe, the social and cultural differences you mentioned still, still pay, pay a role. 
even though there are some some similarities but you, you both come from North America and we've been talking with Thomas about his history a, a bit you know doing river uh, river rafting guiding and that sort of thing but would you like Susan to share some of your own, own background uh, did, did you have a, a strong connection to the natural world already when you were, were a child or a young person or? yeah I think I did and not in um, maybe a dramatic way I wasn't uh, you know, involved in environmental protests, except, you know, the, the kind of way an eight-year-old might come home and say, hey, we need to recycle. Um, but I think perhaps what made a difference for me is that I was fortunate, even though I sort of grew up in the suburbs, um, behind my home there was a woods and a creek, and uh, my bedroom window opened facing the creek so at night I would hear the creek uh, running and I would hear the wind in the trees and you know maybe that had a powerful impact on me. I certainly spent a lot of time walking around the woods near my house um, so even though as I say my, my family didn't, didn't show any particular interest or connection to the environment I think it maybe became an implicit part of who I was those important kind of uh, sensory memories of nature. Yeah. Yeah, I think that implicit, explicit is a really good thing to think about. And listeners, you know, you all can think about that too. There's certain things we just pick up from where we live and we don't think about them. We just, they become part of who we are. And then I think part of our process, even with this podcast, is making all this stuff more explicit. And of course, we're all, you know, nor global north, white, light-skinned people. So we have our own perspectives on this, but I want to make sure... You know, listeners. I'm, you know, there's listeners around the world in this podcast, and they're all coming from different places. And and um, I think every place has an indigenous root uh, and an indigenous core. And no matter where you are in the world, I mean, indigenous cultures exist now. Of course, it's not a. They're not just an anachronism. And we have, you know, First Nations people listening to this now. And uh, but all of us can aspire to some sort of connection with the place. And then there's a lot of problems and, and barriers too. So just just to make sure that we're not missing that 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 important point. I think one of the interesting things is, um, at least for me, it's the ways in which we think about nature and the ways in which we think about our own relationship with nature can be so uh, so implicit that we kind of don't realize that there are alternatives. Mm. Um, and so encountering some of these alternative ways of thinking about that relationship can just be very re revealing in terms of shedding light on your own perspectives. Mm -hmm. Like example, what, what are you thinking about, Susan, when you say that? Well, I think just um, thinking about the fact that, uh, it, for example, a lot of, of Westerners, a lot of people in the U.S. and maybe Western European countries um, tend to think of humans and nature as very separate. And if you ask them, you know, what what is nature or what is wilderness especially, they'll define it as, well, essentially a place where you don't find people and you don't find any evidence of people. And this is even uh, embodied in the, the U.S. Wilderness Act, for example. Mm, mm. You know, there are many other cultures in which there may be no word for wilderness, you know, that nature is something that it, to which people um, are related. They feel a sense of kinship with the natural world. And, um, yeah, so just recognizing that's the case makes me think, huh, why do I think of nature as separate for human? And it gives me more uh, insight into the limits of my own perspective. 
Yeah, thanks for sharing all that and that resonates with my earlier history also researching environmental theology and of course the role of the Judeo-Christian worldview and religion in creating some possible hierarchies and all the mixed legacy. Of course there were more ecological elements in that tradition also, but my students, I still teach some courses on environment and religion. They are always amazed to hear that in the ancient Hebrew, the original language of the Old Testament, there is no word for nature, mm. literally. There are of course some words that you can use for, for you know, land and so on, but they, they didn't have a separate concept for, for na- nature. And that of course tells of a profound difference already between the Greek vocabulary and worldview and the, and the ancient mm. be a bit more hunter-gatherer <laughs> founded worldview. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, and then we talk about climate cosmopolitanism, this this concept of, you know, like we got it, we have to sort of think about all these different views, even of climate change and, you know, approaches to climate change and feelings about climate change and strategies about it and all that sort of stuff. So yes, I, uh, all the world. Um, yeah, and Susan, um, one of many things we could talk about is your work on the um, intergovernmental panel on climate change. Um, we've got this Glasgow meeting going on, and you know, the listeners don't get a chance often to hear from someone who's been on these these kind of committees and doing this kind of work. Do you have any anecdotes about your work on some of these re- IPCC reports and things like that? Yeah, well, I- or do you not want to? Do you not want to talk about that? It's up to you. <laughs> no, it, it, it's fine. Um, I, I'm sure you can you can definitely uh, empathize with me when I say how how gratifying it is that um, that people are starting to pay more attention to the impacts, the human impacts of climate change, including the impacts on mental health. So that's just been really wonderful to see. Um, to the extent that that's happening. And I will say with regard to uh, my participation with the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, there have been a couple of wonderful things about that. I mean, probably more than a couple, but one is it is such an international, um, a, a very intentionally international group, like probably both of you. I've, I'm in a number of organizations that try to be international, but they're almost always um, primarily um, from North America and Western Europe, um, whereas the IPCC really does get people from, you know, probably every country around the world. And uh, it's, it's a, a unique experience and a very valuable one to me. And then the other thing is, you know, we were talking, get, getting back to the idea of emotions. You know, people often think, uh, how do you maintain optimism in the face of climate change? How do you keep from feeling anxiety and despair all the time. And the process of these hundreds of scientists who are volunteering their time to, um, to talk about climate change and its mechanisms and its effects and how we can mitigate it and how we can adapt to it. Um, and they're cheerful, you know, when, when back in the day when we were able to actually meet in person, um, people were friendly and happy. And I think the process of working with these people who are so committed to bringing their expertise to bear on this topic is a reminder of um, the possibility of, of finding you know meaning and purpose and just positive experiences in and talking about climate change yeah 
Yeah, thanks Susan for, for sharing that. That sounds like many empowering experiences together with these professionals from ar around the world. And uh, sometimes in media, one might get the, get the image that climate scientists are only depressed these days. And of course, it's very important that the difficult emotions of climate scientists and other researchers, uh, that, that they get enough attention. And I, I know that you've been involved in that as, as I've, I've been in, in Finland, but also to, to bring forward that there's much, much joy and laughter still among people who work passionately for, for a better, better future. So thanks. Thanks for lifting that up. Yeah, I think it's, you know, I've been playing around with some positive ideas. You know, I think there's a sense of momentum we get when we're actually working on a project. You know, it, it, we, we, we have a sense of movement. We're, we're engaged in something. And that itself is really psychologically healthy to have a sense of engagement in a project of any kind, whatever, whatever kind of project it is. Um, and I think at these meetings, I mean, people don't realize you're, you're around people that believe in what you believe and validate what you feel and think. And that's so healthy, you know, to be around, it's so inspiring to be around a bunch of people, especially really gifted people um, that really, you don't have to explain yourself. You're all, you're, you're on the same page. And I think that's huge. And some, I, I'm sorry, I mean, for the listeners that don't get that, and I know a lot of people, in fact, maybe most people don't get that in the world. I, I'm lucky enough to get pieces of that even just right now in our conversation. So I think there's even a sense of like a flow, you know, there's this flow state, right, in, in, in psychology. Mihaly Cheeks meant high. unfortunately just passed away and we lost this this researcher who, you know, popularized flow. But, you know, I think we can even, you know, again, this is provocative, but we can get into like a f climate flow or like we're working on stuff and we're in a flow and we're getting feedback and we're being supported. And so that's an, a, that's kind of a revolutionary idea. But I, I, I don't know, Susan, have you felt climate flow like in some of these meetings? Absolutely. I think, you know, the idea that we get caught up in doing something that we find meaningful um, and that takes... It takes some effort, but not too much. I mean, I think that's kind of the definition of flow, that it requires your resources, but it doesn't require more from you than you can, than you have to give. Uh, so yes, I definitely experienced that. And I think um, recognizing the, the sources of satisfaction that come from, um, from, from good work um, is kind of what it comes down to. Mm, yeah. I also want um, to, Thanks, Tom. thank you, Thomas, for, for raising the issue of how the social context for um, thinking about climate change can affect our experiences of it. So, as you say, a lot of people may feel that I mean, they, not only do they have to deal with their own emotions, but they have to deal with maybe unsupportive um, friends or family members or coworkers who, uh, or even if they don't, they're not really unsupportive. Um, just the the worried that they might be unsupportive can shut down some conversations before they even get started. So the ability to talk about our worries is, is very important, very satisfying. Mm. Yes, countering feelings of isolation and low loneliness, so sort of climate isolation or climate loneliness are part of this affective spectrum very much I think I think too and you both sort of testify to the possibility of experiencing both difficult emotions and very positive empowering emotions and I always find that very important to em emphasize that both can exist 
it doesn't need to be one one sided but it's the sort of full spectrum of different different colors but you you Susan are known as one of the four runners in uh, research and thinking about eco anxiety or climate anxiety and I wanted to ask you that when did you get involved with that particular topic does it have a long history already um, no I think it's a fairly well it it may be it may be as much as four or five years but but perhaps less and, and not more. I think it arose partly out of discussions with um, with reporters and with journalists. So I had been uh, writing about the mental health effects of climate change, um, you know, starting with a, a paper with Thomas and then uh, other papers more recently. And people would ask me, well, is this, you know, is this a mental health issue? If people are concerned about climate change, does this represent a threat to mental health? Um, so I started to think, well, I don't know, does it? You know, let's look at it. Let's do some of the research and um, try to find out how many people are experiencing some anxiety associated with climate change and, and what does that look like? And is it for them a threat to mental health? And just so I don't leave mm. that dangling, uh, I'll um, maybe reassure the listeners that it, no, it's not necessarily a threat, or it's not. It doesn't indicate a problem with mental health, but it can certainly be a source of stress that does. Um, you know, it, it can be one thing that impacts your mental health, especially if uh, mm. you feel very strong anxiety and maybe don't have um, a supportive social network or a feeling of of efficacy. Mm. Yeah, that. Uh, links in my mind to this 2011 team number of the American psychologists where you both wrote, wrote stuff and the models are quite advanced actually I, I think and Thomas has been t- t- telling that it was partly theoretical at that time because there wasn't so much evidence about the indirect vicarious impacts of, of climate stress for, for example but I think those have stood the test of time pretty well many of those those models and what was then discussed without a sort of pre-word just you know mentioning anxiety and depression and stress so now during the last five years we've seen the development of many special terms people putting eco or climate in before these words and that has communicative value but of course it sometimes makes also things tricky that mm-hmm. how, how how many phenomena we put inside these sort of general general words yeah like it's the you know they say the blind man the blind man and the elephant parable you know everybody so well, eco anxiety is it's this or it's this and you know we have the cultural critique of our system and our you know capitalism and you know media and then there's the personal confessions um, so I think yeah the listeners and and, and media media is both our friend and, and also kind of confuses things because they're picking out different pieces of the elephant and each each article trumpets one one side or the other so at least people confuse sometimes how do you susan see the research field about uh, anxiety and ecological matters these days i know you get a lot of messages from people who are interested in researching it yes i think the the research is really um exploding or about to explode it's um uh, partly because you know other other people, uh, mental health professionals, clinical psychologists, and others have recognized that this is a thing. Um, so uh, this 
a whole group of people who had not previously been thinking about climate change are now beginning to think about it more, and so they're, they're recognizing this is a topic they want to learn more about. And, and not even mental health professionals, just sort of public health um, professionals. I think uh, um, it has grabbed people's attention, hopefully for good reasons that, um, you know, somebody said, and I, I, I can't remember where I, where I read this, so I apologize for not giving an attribution, but, you know, sometimes it's hard to, um, you don't know what you're feeling until somebody gives you a word and then you realize that that's the word that describes what you're feeling. So I think a lot of people thought, yes, that's exactly it, climate, climate mm -hmm. anxiety, yeah. or eco-anxiety. Yeah. Um, and they're not all necessarily meaning the same thing when they use that word, but they are recognizing that it, it means something to them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they're validated, they're being validated, they're, they're being is being validated. Yeah, that happened a lot in Finland with ympäristöahdistus, which is the Finnish equivalent, literally environment anxiety. Mm -hmm. So, of course, different languages play somewhat differently. That's one topic in this podcast. And the very thing you mentioned of exploring possible names for these emotions or groups of emotions, that's, of course, a, a big task of, for this very, very podcast. Yes, yes. We've got a few more minutes. I, I feel moved to just mention some of the other work um, that I know Susan for and, uh, you know, around uh, with animals and with other species. And I know that's been a, that's been a, that's been a big, big strand in your work. And I know through uh, like Carol Saunders, one of our colleagues who kind of helped found conservation psychology, you know, and, you know, our, our, so just, to, just to, just to name that there are other species out there as well that, we have relationships with. And I don't know if that's something you want to say anything about, Susan, but I know that's something I associate with you as well. Absolutely. And uh, again, it was um, just sort of happenstance that I started doing some work um, in zoos, uh, gosh, probably almost 15 years ago now, um, partly inspired by Carol Saunders, who happened to come up to me at an APA conference and introduce herself. And um, the zoo was significant to me as a place where a lot of people encounter nature. So even people who live in, in very urban environments are able to encounter nature. And of course, zoos are, are not, they're not wild, they're not wilderness, they're, you know, arguably, um, they're not natural, they're managed by humans. And yet, uh, for a lot of people, it was an important place to encounter those other species and to, to think about the natural world. Um, so I'm still fascinated by that idea that people and, and parents will deliberately take their children to the zoo in order to expose them to some of the natural world. So it's not something that's just happening accidentally, but it's, it's a, a choice that parents are making to say that nature is important to, my, to me and I want my child to have some exposure to it. So thinking more about how those encounters can happen, um, about how people are defining what is nature, what counts as nature, what should it look like, and how that might affect um, the ways in which we take care of natural landscapes. These are just, these are just fascinating questions to me that reflect on um, what it means to be human, because we define ourselves as humans in part in terms of what we're not. So um, how does, how does how we think about what it means to be human affect how we think about what it means to be natural. Yeah, thanks a lot for sharing that and this uh, interface or boundaries, uh, however porous they may be between humans and uh, 
more than human world that's that's a very crucial topic and the recent rise in post-humanistic re- research has brought many of these themes into the fore sometimes in a slightly di- difficult language but uh, the, the subject matter is very very important and i just noticed that you've been writing also about psychology of rewilding so that's one one now on my on my reading list yeah i have a lot of more questions than answers about it at this point but um yeah. one of the things i find fascinating and, and maybe thomas this will have some meaning to you is that um I've heard people talk about rewilding, how we need to rewild ourselves in a sort of a a psychodynamic kind of sense. So I I think it's an interesting Mm -hmm. metaphor to the extent it's a metaphor that people are using. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think it depends on people's culture and what's meaningful for them. But, you know, our feelings are wild, so we want to be open to all of them, the the, the hard ones and the positive ones. And Yeah, um, we'll have to, Anna, we'll we'll have to make a point of doing a, a talk on re- wilding and rewilding in one of our episodes. I think that's a really juicy topic for people. Mm-hmm. But just suffice to say, you know that you know these zoos are conservation organizations, and 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 they are, they're linked back to to actual environments and places where people are trying to to save and preserve species in their natural habitats as well. So it's a whole system. That's one thing I learned from that work was that it isn't just a, a menagerie of of animals. It's a whole worldwide system of conservation that these zoos are just you know, piece of, um, but, um, yeah, we've coming to the end of our time. This has been a really great chat. Um, we could always, we could always go more and, you know, as, as our adventures go on, Susan, maybe we can have have you come back again sometime. Uh, the story is not over yet, obviously with all the stuff that we're doing. Um, so I want to thank you very much, uh, Susan, for your time today. Yeah, it's a pleasure. Thanks for the conversation. It's always, it's, it's nice to touch base and to, to throw these ideas around with both of you. Yeah, warm, warm thanks from Helsinki also. I really uh, admire the width of your in- interest and, and research. So this was very, very fascinating and all, all the best for these many, many fields. Well, thanks. Uh, we'll, in our in our website, we'll, we'll try to put some good links to Susan's work. And, and um, you all listening, take care of yourself. We covered a lot of ground in our episode today about nature and and feelings and our identities and and even this idea of of of, of support and flow so, so hopefully there's planning we planted some seeds for you all so you all take care mm-hmm.